1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. Today we're discussing the pandemic and the race to develop the vaccines to combat it. Of course, those efforts have primarily involved scientific and medical know-how, but here in the UK, achieving vaccine success was also helped by some shrewd business minds. One of those was venture capitalist Kate Bingham. Having worked in the biotech sector for 30 years, she was asked by the UK government to be chair of the UK's Vaccine Task Force and lead a team of experts from across sectors including science, industry, academia and the business world to help develop the UK vaccine response in early 2020. She recently sat down with Jessica Poulet at the Cliveden Literary Festival back in October of this year to explain how businesses played their part in the race to develop vaccines. Here's Jessica with more.
2: So perhaps, Kate, you could start by looking back on the past 18 months. Cast your mind back to the situation in March-April 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic here in the UK. Maybe you could describe the challenging situation that the
3: country was in at that time. Thank you, Jessica, and thank you for a lovely introduction. So my first involvement was an email on the 1st of April, which felt like an April Fool's. But it was inviting me to join Patrick Vallance's expert advisory group on vaccines, to which I responded to say, well, I don't know anything about vaccines, so, you know, why do you want me? And his reaction, his response was, uh, we actually need somebody who understands the small, innovative company landscape to complement all the largely academic vaccine experts. So I joined this group and we had three one-hour sessions. And at the first session. um, And this was sort of an advisory group to what was basically a team of civil servants within BASE, so the business department. Uh, I asked the experts on this advisory group, what they thought was the chances of success of any of the potential vaccine candidates actually ever proving to be safe and effective. And the response from the experts was it was about 15% for those vaccines that were already in clinical trials, of which were probably three or four. And if vaccines weren't yet in the clinic, it was probably a 10% chance of success. And so that was a very sobering view to begin with. There were at that point about 190. different vaccine candidates at different stages of development. And what we knew then was the quickest time that any vaccine had ever been developed at that point was five years. So the mumps vaccine was developed in five years, but that was 50 years ago. And we didn't have any Uh, experience of actually doing anything more quickly than that. So from the definition of the sequence through to the actual approved vaccine. So it seemed like a massive, massive uphill struggle with those sorts of odds that the experts were assigning to the likelihood of any of these vaccines working and with the need to do so quickly because it didn't seem like social distancing was a way out. It was a way to limit viral transmission, but it wasn't a solution to the actual pandemic itself. So it certainly felt quite a daunting task in April, which is when I was involved. And then on the third meeting uh, I joined, um, I then get a text during that meeting um, from Matt Hancock. And I just, I'm not used to all this. This is how government works as they text each other. And um, so he texts me and says, can you speak? And I was actually obviously in the middle of this vaccine advisory meeting. So I said, no, I I can't. I'm I'm working for you guys actually at the moment. And so we speak after that. um, And that's when he says, would I join as chair, full-time chair, because they now recognize they want to actually do something more than a, you know, very part-time advisory group. And I wasn't very clever because I didn't sort of anticipate why you wanted to speak or, or what was it about. So I did my normal sort of why me and, and surely that you've got somebody better that could do this. And eventually he said to me, Kate, none of us have done this before. Um, we're asking you to do this. And I said, well, hold on, who is we? And he said, well, I've just come from the prime minister um, and he's asked you. So I said, well, I need to think about it. And I did think about it for for twenty four hours, and Jess, if he 's in the audience, was very influential, as you might imagine, as was my family and I then I spoke to a few people who 'd worked with government just to see if it was going to be doable and uh, went back the following day to say i 'll do it on these conditions, which was you know six month contract, able to um, recruit my own team. Also importantly, getting a quick decision because it hadn't had a lot to do with government. I didn't know how the rules work, but I was pretty sure that the rules were very slow. So I said I wanted a a very quick decision-making process. So anyway, after I'd set out the conditions, I then get the next text, which is from the prime minister saying, can you speak? So (laughs) (laughs) I I then, uh, and I was on the phone at the time. So I then spoke to him. And actually my main message, well, his message to me was, I wanted to do three things get vaccines for the uk ensure that successful vaccines get rolled out worldwide and put plans in place to make sure that we are better prepared for any future pandemic Uh, and my message back to him was this was a real tall order and that the chances are we would fail didn't mean we shouldn't do it but the likelihood was that this was not going to work and also that we were going to have to put cash up front at risk so that if any of these vaccines worked we were going to have to have already committed to the scale up and the manufacture of these vaccines. So if they were shown to be safe and effective, we would be in a position to then roll out quickly. So that's how it all started. And it was all, it felt pretty hairy at the time, actually. And then we got going. Fantastic. That's so interesting. Thank you,
2: Kate. Maybe onto another point now. I think you said last year, no vaccine has ever been developed against any human coronavirus, but there are good coronavirus vaccines for chickens and pigs. Perhaps you could give us a short explanation about how long it typically takes to develop a new vaccine. I mean, for example, vaccines for polio, mumps, typhoid, and so on. What what's the typical time it takes?
3: I mean, the average is about is ten years, roughly. And normally, what happens when you're developing vaccines or therapeutics, actually, is you have a period of discovery. So you've actually got to make whatever vaccine it's going to be, and then you've got to, then you've got to test it. And then normally, once you've done all the full testing, that's at the point at which you start scaling it up. And so what happened here, which was different, was the most advanced vaccine formats, so the adeno and the mRNA vaccine formats were very quick to make, because basically what those are, are you drop in the genetic sequence that encodes the spike protein, either naked into a fatty envelope, which is mRNA, or into a um, viral uh, vector, which is the adeno. So they're actually pretty quick to make. The, The Moderna vaccine itself was designed in 42 days and made. So what happened this time was the safety testing, which is the first time you put this foreign material into a person, that process was completely unchanged. So that was not accelerated. That was most cases was done at substantially larger numbers to establish the safety of these vaccines. But what then happened was having once the safety, the, the Initial safety had been established. Then there was availability of cash that allowed you to accelerate the rest of the the, uh, clinical trials. So I don't know how many of you remember um, the announcements last year, but When Oxford first announced their immunogenicity data, which is basically the data that shows that their vaccine was able to elicit an an immune response as measured by neutralizing antibodies, when they announced that data, which was in um, early July, they were already well through Um, the recruitment of a phase three clinical trial. Now normally that wouldn't happen. So normally you do every part of the clinical trials uh, would be done sequentially. But because we had cash, we were able to accelerate that big pivotal study before we actually had the immunogenicity data. And that's how we were able to compress the actual clinical trial process which is unusual. So there was no shortcuts taken in in safety, but there was the risk of putting cash up front to to accelerate the clinical studies. Um, And then in parallel, we were scaling it up. And so this is something that is really amazing. So it was actually during the football match between Norwich and Liverpool in February last year, when Oxford scientists called um, the Bioindustry Association, which is our our industry association that brings together obviously all all the companies in the bio industry and said, we need your help to scale up our vaccine. So they had limited scale up within the university itself, um, but they didn't obviously have mass commercial scale up or skills to do that. So they called the Industry Association in the middle of February 2020 and said, we need your help. And what happened was then a coalition of different basically CDMOs, so contract developed manufacturing organizations, came together to basically do all the both first the clinical trial manufacture and then the scale up work to actually get it into bulk industrial scale uh, manufacture. And the industry did so without any contract or any payment or anything. This was in starting in February. Vaccine task force hadn't even been conceived of until April and contracts were not put in place ultimately till um, late May. So it's, it's something that's really quite interesting as to The people actually knew uh, that they had the skills that were needed and they stepped up when they needed to, not because they were told to or because the legal contracts told them to, but because they knew it was the right thing to do. And that is why the UK was so far ahead in many ways. And so by the time I arrived, we actually had at least a group of people supporting the Oxford vaccine. And of course, bioprocessing or advanced manufacturing, in some ways, it doesn't matter what you make, you're growing up biological systems and whether you're growing up virus or mRNA or protein or antibodies, it's the same broad set of skills that are needed. And it was that early foresight and that early collaboration that really made a difference. And you'll remember I've maybe in the papers last year, I mean, we sent out, again, entirely voluntarily, um, teams of our experts to go and work in the continental European plants to help them transfer the skills, to help them scale up, to get to a um, the quality Uh, and the scale that were needed um, to actually generate, you know, millions of vaccines. And actually that worked incredibly quickly. Normally scale up takes years and years and it's not linear. And the issue with cells is they're very, very complicated. So, you know, the times when I'd I'd get shouted at by ministers saying, um, you know, you're not doing this quickly enough. And so I'd go back to um, my manufacturing guys and said, look, I'm 99.9% sure I'm absolutely on safe ground, but I just want to check, is there anything else we could do to scale up what we're doing any more quickly and do it any faster? And one of my manufacturing guys paused and he said, well you could try singing to the cells and ask them to uh, go faster but the answer was there isn't this is a this is a very complex difficult unpredictable non linear process and it was done at record speed so i mean actually it's been a a lovely story of you know real altruism and skills and commitment you've talked a little bit now about what it was
2: like to be in the room where it happened or perhaps more accurately in the zoom where it happened huh but uh, <laughs> <That's> really good. <laughs> you, you, um, and you've also talked about what it's like to have manufactured at such scale and at such speed. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about how you recruited people for the vaccine trials, and um, and what were some of the issues around that? Particularly, perhaps some of the ethical issues about exposing people in the trials to an illness, which was obviously, you know, great
3: risk to them. So I'm going to just go back one stage, if that's okay. Um, So the first thing I had to do was obviously recruit a team. And I was given a bomb disposal um, engineer as my director general. And that's basically the person that sort of makes sure that the government processes have followed. Um, and he came from the private sector too, albeit he'd had a long career in the army running complex commercial projects. So basically, the two of us put together a team. I brought together the industry people, so, you know, scientific, clinical, manufacturing scale up and the sort of the legacy industry side of long term planning. And Nick then brought together procurement, project management, diplomacy, because obviously we had a whole international angle. And so, when we were talking about the clinical trials, there are two issues to running clinical trials quickly, assuming you've got material to test. The first is the regulatory issue. So, how quickly can you actually get regulatory consent to start putting these foreign products into people? And MHRA, so it's led by a lady, June Rain, basically did exactly what a good regulator should do so instead of sitting back and saying well we'll wait until you have your final dossier and you can you can submit it to us when you've completed everything she said, actually, no, give us your basically your outline essay plan. Tell us what your submission is going to look like. And as and when you've got the data to populate the, f- the submission, drop it in and we will review it as we're going along. So a, a rolling review. And so the MHRA basically turned uh, submissions around massively quickly. So that was that's one area of sort of red tape that was completely eliminated in the COVID pandemic. So no longer one of the, the bottlenecks to getting clinical trials going. And so then the second thing is actually literally just getting people into the trials. And so I recruited this lady, Divya, into uh, our team. And anybody who's met her will just know you're forced to be reckoned with. She's completely fantastic. Fantastic. Um, You know, came from India on a sports scholarship and you can see that she has the energy. So she basically said, we need to put together a national citizen registry so that as we go out and talk to different vaccine companies, we can make an offer, a UK offer, and we can offer them support on manufacturing scale up, which was one theme that we were pushing. But we can also show that we can run their clinical trials quickly and efficiently and get the data out quickly. So obviously there was nothing... Uh, particularly knew about that. There was no reason why we couldn't, why the you know, NHS and UK couldn't have done this donkeys years ago. But anyway, they hadn't. So we used that as an opportunity to put it together. And so we worked with NHS Digital to basically put a page on the NHS website to allow anybody to sign up, to consent, to be contacted about clinical trials. And um, that turned out to be really successful. So we've got north of 500,000 people Uh, that signed up but what was important is we had to make sure that those people that signed up were people who were at risk of infection because it'd be no good having a big database of you know 25 year old fit young people and because if you you know showing a vaccine would work in young people doesn't help you you need to show that the vaccine works in those people who are elderly frail underlying disease the people who are most at risk uh, to the covid infection Um, and so we ended up with over a third over the age of 60. So that was, again, a massive plus. And we were able to then attract companies to come and run their clinical trials in the UK because we had this uh, capability. And so when Novavax came, so that's a US company that was quick on the trial, was being slow on the manufacturing. They came and they asked us initially to do a 10,000 person study, which was about the biggest study that had ever been run in the UK for vaccines. And they wanted us to recruit the whole thing and be done and dusted in six weeks. So we took a deep breath and said, yep, we'll do that. And got the sites and, and pinged the various people in the, on the database. Um, and then uh, the recruitment went so well that after a week or so, Novavirx came back to us and said, we'd like to increase the size of the trial by 50%. We now want you to recruit 15,000 people, but on the same timelines. So we took another double gulp, said, yes, we'll do it. And we did. And so again, it was the the ability for the UK to actually pull together the clinical trials and deliver incredibly high quality data has been one of the real jewels in the, in the response to the pandemic. And it's not just in vaccines. I mean, i'm sure lots of you will remember the recovery study so that's this big master protocol study which basically means you have one placebo arm and then up to six different active arms so anybody that was admitted into hospital in the uk had an opportunity to uh, enroll in the trial and it gave data at a at a scale that it was statistically valid so it's about 2000 uh, patients an arm that altered the course of the treatment of covid infection around the globe. And if you put that in context with the US, only 3% of clinical trials that were run in the U- in the US actually generated any useful clinical data. Whereas a vast majority of what was run in the UK generated Actionable regulatory supported clinical data. So one of the things that we really benefited from is the fact that we have a national health system and everybody has an NHS number. We've got access to clinical records and NHS in our country is about the closest thing you get to a religion. People trust the NHS and being able to recruit that number of people into trials quickly. And of course that was Novavax. We did Oxford, Novavax, Valneva, Johnson & Johnson and then there were a whole lot, um, GSK coming through Medicargo, so a whole bunch of new ones and that i think is one of the big opportunities the uk now has going forward and how can you actually expand that database beyond volunteers for vaccine studies now into all clinical trials so that anybody has an opportunity to take part in trials irrespective of whether they're being looked after by a physician that actually happens to be a, a, a investigator
2: and I think you yourself were in one of these clinical trials, weren't you? Yeah, never mind. Sure. And how was it for you? What was it actually like being part of that trial? Could you perhaps describe it for the audience? Here? I mean, I was really
3: pleased. I, I mean, I felt that it wasn't really fair to ask other people to take part in the trial if I didn't do it myself. And as it turned out, I mean, it was blinded so trials are, are obviously blinded because you want to be able to show that people that receive placebo get infected versus people who receive vaccine don't and so I, quite, I really liked it i mean it was exactly what it should have been which was very careful checking all all sorts of vital signs checked ahead of time and proper consenting to make sure i understood the risks and all of that i got given my first two shots absolutely no effect at all. So they then did a crossover trial to keep people in the study. So instead of just having one arm of placebo and one arm of active, they then crossed it over. So anybody without knowing what you had, but having done four shots, you know that you've had two placebo, two active. So when I was going in for my fourth shot, um, I said to the vaccination nurse, I said, you know, you've been giving me water the whole way through because I've had no effect at all. And um, after that fourth shot, it then knocked me out. So I then knew <laughs> that my doses three and four were the active and doses one and two were placebo. So it was a sort of self unblinding. But but I was really pleased to be part of it. And it's generated phenomenal data. The US has just published their data now on Novavax identical to our data, but they published it months and months after we did. In
2: terms of the decisions to prioritise vaccines to certain sectors of the population and so on, and the efficacy of the dose and the timing of
3: when you space it out, those sorts of decisions, were you involved in in those decisions as well? So my job was purely to get the vaccine. So the first thing I did was to ask the JCVI. So that's the Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunisation. So they are the vaccine experts that advise the government to ask them actually, you know how many how many vaccines do you want and how many people do you want to vaccinate so their answer sort of this time last year was they want to vaccinate those people who are vulnerable who are at risk and that was defined as all adults over the age of 50 and all adults under the age of 50 but with severe underlying disease whether it's asthma heart disease cancer whatever and so you'll have seen the, the purchases we made were in, in groups of 30. So if they were a two dose vaccine, which they mostly are, we'd be getting 60 million doses. And in the Anson case, it's a single dose vaccine. So we just got 30. So JCVI advised on numbers. JCVI advised then on prioritization. And of course, as we've had more variants, their advice has expanded. So they've now expanded down to all adults and now down to children. And I have to say, they've called it right 100% of the time. So if you, again, remember the global derision of the UK for recommending that every as many people as possible should be vaccinated with a single dose and then to delay the timing of the second dose. And there was global outrage saying, but that's not what the clinical trials said. You know, the clinical trials had dosing either three or four weeks apart. And... Of course, the reason the clinical trials were designed with as short a dosing interval as possible is we wanted to get the data as soon as possible because we wanted to show whether or not these vaccines could actually protect against infection. But that didn't mean that that was the optimum time for dosing between the two vaccines. And anybody who studies immunology, and I'm not an expert, but even I know this, know that actually if you delay the period between doses, you will enhance the immune response. And so the JCVI absolutely called it and stuck to their guns and said, no, uh, we want to delay the dosing interval to 12 weeks. And that means we can maximize as many people as possible to actually get a single dose. And then we will optimize the clinical response uh, with the with a second delayed dose. And the data proved them right. And again, if you look around the world, everybody now, despite their early criticisms, are now adopting a delayed um, second dosing regime. So I have to say, I think JCPI absolutely nailed it on the head. Nothing to do with us. We just followed orders and responded to whatever they asked us for. So big clap out to them.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash intelligence.
2: You've talked quite a lot about the importance of manufacturing at scale, at speed, and so on. How important do you think it was to manufacture in the UK?
3: So that was a long term goal. But actually the main message from the prime minister was, you know, you need to do it quickly. People are dying. So it doesn't need to be perfect, but just get vaccines here as soon as you can. So our focus actually was not that we had to have vaccines manufactured in the UK. From a long term resilience perspective, we clearly need to have that flexible capability, but that was not a criteria. So the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was not manufactured in the UK, Uh, that's manufactured on the continent. Uh, The Janssen vaccine is not manufactured here. We put in place an 18 month fill finish contract. So that basically is, there's two stages of manufacture. You have to manufacture the actual vaccine itself, and then you have to put it into vials. And then you have to demonstrate quality and stability and so on. And so what we put in place was an ability to receive bulk drug substance, which we could then put into vials here in the UK, because fill finish was a massive global shortage. And so we felt that, again, would give us additional flexibility. We didn't know what we were gonna put in the vials, but we felt that by having that um, capability, and again, as you know, these are all multi-dose vials, we would have more flexibility about what it was that we could receive and uh, purchase. So as it's turned out, We've got the capability to manufacture in four separate sites. So, Oxford Biomedica basically took on what was the VMIT role, which is the Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Center, which The governments, previous governments had decided that was a good idea, but they just haven't built it. So we had, although it was there in name, it wasn't there in anything other than name. So we built the Oxford Biomedica, did the manufacturing for the Oxford vaccine and did a beautiful job. And it continues to do a beautiful job and is the most productive site anywhere in the world. Um, We bought a veterinary vaccine manufacturing plant because building de novo was going to take too long and just was not going to be responsive to the urgency of, of getting vaccine made. But actually converting and upgrading a veterinary plant uh, was something that we could could do. So we did that and that's run by what's called the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult and is able to manufacture again all of the different vaccine formats, but we earmarked it to manufacture mRNA. And then we supercharged one of the development organisations up in Darlington uh, called Fuji. So again allowed them to scale up in much larger bioreactors to be able to make more of the protein-based vaccine. Um, And then Valneva, which is the Scottish plant that grows up whole inactivated, well, grows up whole viruses. So this is growing live SARS-CoV-2. Then you inactivate it, and then you put that acts as the vaccine itself, which is a very standard, old-fashioned sort of vaccine. Um, Not quick, but... It's super flexible. So again, if you need to grow up a variant, you can grow up a variant and that can then become your vaccine. So that's what we put in place. The only one that uh, is currently supplying vaccines to the UK at the moment is the Oxford Biomedica. Uh, Fuji is making it, but the vaccine's not approved yet. And then the other two are the sort of the resilience capabilities. So we definitely are better off now than we were. And we'll just see how those go. So if
2: we do scroll forward to now, I think a year ago you said, our main job is to identify, manufacture and develop the most promising pandemic vaccines and deliver them rapidly to the populations that need them. COVID-19 gives us an opportunity to create a permanent system for supplying vaccines for future pandemics quickly and safely. This process must become as routine and reliable as crafting the yearly influenza vaccine. To what extent do you think that
3: has been achieved? Uh, I'll give ourselves a B, probably. So I think we've got better. It's definitely better than it was, but I don't think we're fully there yet.
2: So how many vaccines have now been licensed in the UK? Are there others
3: which have been licensed in other countries or are still in development? Yeah, so we've got three that are licensed here. So it's Oxford, uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna. I don't think Janssen has yet been licensed here. To be fair, it doesn't really make sense for some of the vaccines that are behind to devote a lot of time to getting UK uh, regulatory approval when there are other countries that need the vaccine more. So I think it is reasonable that given that we're now fully supplied with vaccine, that those other countries should be prioritized ahead of us. Now, I'd like to make sure that we will get um, approvals to have the flexibility to use all those different vaccines. But at the moment, it's just three. I would expect in the next six months, we will probably have another two or three. So I think I'd expect, obviously, Janssen is being widely used elsewhere, just not here yet. Novavax will get approved. Uh, Valneva will get approved. Um, And then the next generation uh, GSK vaccine will get approved. So that's four, I think, that we'll get approved probably in the next six plus months.
2: And you've talked quite a lot and very eloquently about some of the factors that were responsible for the UK's success, the ability to scale up at speed, the role of the NHS, the role of JCVI and so on. And are there any other factors which you would say were responsible for the success of the programme here as opposed to in other countries?
3: Um, Yes, of course. So I'm a venture capitalist. So I, I work with novel science to turn them into new drugs to have disease altering effects on patients. So of course, that's, you know, if you're a hammer, if you are a hammer, everything you look at looks like a nail. So for me, we applied basically the same approaches as I would do for a venture capital investment, which is the likelihood is a lot is going to fail. You're going to have to work very hard to make sure that you work in partnership with your companies to make sure that anything that could be successful is successful and that you put on the best possible expertise and help to allow whether it's my, my companies or vaccines to succeed. So we applied exactly that same approach. So we built a portfolio. We cut the losers quickly, where it was clear that we weren't going to make it, we, we chopped. We put in place expert teams to support them. And all aspects, whether it's scale-up, clinical trials, regulatory support, whatever we could do to to ensure that our companies that we'd contracted with would be most successful, um, that's what we did for vaccines. And that's obviously what I do in, in venture capital. And I think that did work. And this concept of risk and, and recognising we were going to lose money. So we spent £900 million up front on vaccines, which we didn't know whether or not they would work. So that was the cost of the balance sheet to the... Uh, you know, all of us, our taxpayers' money, for scale up and running clinical trials before we knew whether they would work. And that was something which I think was highly unusual. So, if you compare our approach to the approach of Europe, which has since been massively sort of uh, explored in the press, the, the approach the European Union took, which is actually the, the approach that all governments typically take, is a classic procurement approach, which is you line up all the different products, you quantify them and you rank them against each other you decide which you want and then you go in and say right i'll have you know 100 million of those and that's not the way we worked because First of all, the data wasn't comparable. Uh, Second of all, it was all coming in dribs and drabs, and you didn't have time to wait until you had a complete data set. Because if you waited until you'd have the complete data set, you would be uh, securing vaccines for delivery in 22. So that was hopeless. So you had to make early expert judgments, and we only did that by having an expert team that could do it. So one of the main reasons why I think we were successful was we were allowed to build a team that had that expertise, we had a single uh, decision-making process within government. So one of my anxieties about too many fingers in the pot and too many people trying to you know, give official advice on all of this and going between departments, we ended up instead with an investment committee that had the secretaries of state for business, health, cabinet office, and treasury. And we would submit a business case And if we needed to speak to them, you know, late on a Friday night, we spoke to them late on a Friday night and we had a single decision. And the decision could be yes or it could be no. But we weren't going to go through the hoops and uh, be protracted. And that worked really well. And the ministers all stepped up. They read their papers. They asked us good questions. They made their spending decisions. So my role was not a spending role. It was a recommendation role. And then the other aspect was that we had a prime minister mandate. So whenever the machine was started... Threatening to get gobbled up, you know. I could go back and say, "Look, you know, I don't want to go back to the prime minister on this, but if I have to, I will." And they knew I would. Um, and so, actually, we had a position where the government was willing to put cash up front at risk, which was unlike most governments. And since I stepped back, I had a whole host of different governments call me: France, Sweden, Germany, Brazil, um, Canada, a bunch of them, basically saying you know, what did you do and how did you make it work? And most of the other governments simply couldn't get their heads around the idea that the UK was willing to put cash up front to back vaccines before we knew whether or not they would work. And in the grand scheme of things, 900 million pounds is not a lot of money given the cost to the economy of being in lockdown and the cost of recovery, if you could recover more quickly. And the average cost we spent per dose was a little over 10 pounds a dose. So it wasn't as if we threw money at it. Our average cost was comparable with that for the U.S. and European Union, but we were willing to put money up front, and that was a big difference. So you know, hats off for the trust, because I think a lot of governments wouldn't trust you know somebody from the private sector with no track records in government whatsoever. And say, you know what, we'll we'll listen to your recommendations and we'll act on them. And and our government did, so you know that was good. Thank you. You said previously, I think, um,
2: at least nine coronaviruses from bats have not crossed into humans. These, plus other zoonotic diseases and mutations in current strains, make future pandemics likely. If God forbid there should be another pandemic, are we better
3: prepared? Uh, Yes, I don't think we're fully prepared yet, but what we can do now with AI and machine learning is actually to take all the different, I mean, those are coronaviruses, but there'll be a whole bunch of other pandemic viruses. Take those sequences now and say, you know, where could the mutations be that actually would would lead to greater infectivity and what could those look like? So the first thing we can do is take the SARS-CoV-2. And so we've gone through alpha, beta, gamma, delta. We've now got sort of delta prime variant at the moment. But we can actually start predicting, well, where do you think the next mutations are likely to be? And so now we can make those sequences, make what those potential variant strains could look like, and then test them against uh, the vaccines we've got now. And that was something we spent money in to basically reinforce our ability to test preclinically head to head. If we find that those predicted variant strains actually uh, escape the current vaccines, well, then we can start actually making the vaccines that can actually address those new strains. So there's certainly theoretically an ability to do that. That work is ongoing. It's not something that UK should be doing alone, though. So I think th- this is this needs to be a global effort where, you know, basically the, the, glo- the Western economies divvy up all the potential different future pandemic strains and potential variants from this SARS-CoV-2, and then start thinking about, well, can we start creating those seed Banks to, so that we, are, we have the seed banks ready to scale up should, should we need to. So I think we are better prepared. We've got much better global monitoring. But again, the UK is doing about 50% of the global surveillance uh, in terms of sequencing of, of strains. So again, we need to get better joined up and more supportive collaborations with other countries. And I think that's coming. So are we out of the woods? Absolutely no way. Are we better off than we were? Yeah. So with that, Okay,
2: I'd like to, on behalf of all of us here this morning, thank you very much indeed for your absolutely (laughs) fascinating insights over the course of the last hour. Thank you so (laughs) much. Thank you.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing,